Now, if you care to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, for a reading again. And you remember last week, I may have confused you by announcing it was the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the Lord's conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't intend to finish our studies for another couple of weeks. But we entered last week into the Lord's official conclusion, if you like, of this sermon that he preached in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel that we've been following in so much detail over 25 weeks or so. But we're reading on from verses 13 and 14 from last week. We'll take time to read them too to get the flow of the Lord's thoughts. And again, it is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes, or thorns, or figs, or thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth good fruit is, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. I want to speak to you today on false prophets, their projection and production. False prophets, their projection and their production. If a prophet is a foreteller of the word of God and a foreteller of the word of God, which we know from the Old Testament specifically, he is one who foretold the future, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. God told him things that should happen specifically in the land of Israel toward God's people. He was a foreteller. But he also was a forth teller. God gave him his word. And in a, a naked sense, a blunt ABC sense, he was one who told the word of God and declared the word of God and communicated what God had given to him. So if that's what a prophet is, a forth teller and a foreteller, we can there see that the antithesis, the false prophet, the opposite of a prophet, must be a man who misrepresented God. A man who told either his own words or the words of the devil or a demon, but certainly not the words of God. Now, the verses that we've read to get together today of the Lord Jesus in this sermon assumes that we understand, first of all, the existence of false prophets. There are false prophets in the world and indeed in the church. One biblical, biblical writer says, There is no sense in putting on your garden gate the notice, Beware of dogs, if all you have at home is a couple of cats and a budgerigar. And there's no sense in the Lord saying, Beware of false prophets, if they don't exist, if there's no such a thing as a false prophet. The Bible tells us a great deal about false prophets. They're familiar both in the Old Testament and in the New. And if you go to the Old Testament, you find in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, that there God laid down at the very beginning that if a man came into Israel and preached something that was not of God, he prophesied something that was to come to pass, and it did not happen, he was to be stoned because he was and is a false prophet. It was very dangerous to be a prophet if you got something wrong, and it was dangerous to be a false prophet if you were found out. And so we have, right at the very beginning of the Old Testament, a definition of what a false prophet and false prophecy really is. 
And we find as we go through the Old Testament that false prophecy was motivated not by loyalty to God, which was the motivation for true prophets, but rather motivated by a desire for popularity in themselves. In other words, it was motivated by pride. Recently, we've been looking in the book of Ezekiel and his contemporary who was in Jerusalem at the time prophesying. Ezekiel was in a concentration camp by the river Kibar. And at the same time, Jeremiah was in the city of Jerusalem telling the folk that they were going to be deported and exiled and the city was going to be destroyed. And as Jeremiah was preaching that destruction was coming and judgment was coming and the Babylonians were God's instruments to come and to sack the city and take the people away to Babylon for 70 years, while he was prophesying true things, false prophets were rising all around in Jerusalem, one in particular called Hananiah, who were saying that what Jeremiah was saying was wrong and that there would be peace, peace. But God said, there is no peace. And in fact, Isaiah faced the same thing, and we read in Isaiah 30 and verse 10 that the people said to the prophets, to the seers, see not, don't see these things. Prophesy not unto us right things, but speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Literally, tell us lies. We don't want to hear what you're saying, so tell us what we want to hear. And these false prophets, motivated by their own desire for popularity and their own self-conscious pride, they prophesied to the people what they wanted to hear. But not only were they motivated by their own popularity, but to a large extent, they were motivated by nationality. They were motivated by an appeal to national pride. We're God's people. We're Israel. We've got the temple. We've got the law. We've got the covenants. We've got the land. Don't come and tell us that God's going to judge his own people. We're his, the people of God's name. And thirdly, not only was it motivated by popularity and by nationality, but it was served by their own selfish self-interest. They wanted money, many of them. Balaam is one example of that. And you can go right through the whole of the Old Testament. Men and women, false prophets, who were only motivated by their own desire for popularity, by nationality, and finally by their own greed. So in the Old Testament, we see a simple definition of what a false prophet is and what motivates him. He's self-centered. He's wrongly motivated. He's detached from reality and what God is really saying to the people. And then we go into the New Testament. The first occurrence that we have in reference to false prophets is in the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 7 and verse 15. The Lord says, beware of these false prophets. Then in Matthew 24, verses 11 and 24, the Lord Jesus tells us that in the last days, specifically during the tribulation period, there would be false Christs who would arise up and try to deceive even the very elect, the Christians that are in the world at that time, and indeed the Jews. And as we go through the epistles later on at the end of the New Testament, we find that the early church must have been absolutely plagued with such false pseudo-prophets. For nearly in every apostolic letter that we have, it contains a severe warning against pseudo-false prophets. In some of the letters, they are called the Greek word pseudo-propheton, pseudo Prophets, literally, and that's the word that's used in Matthew 7 and verse 15. A prophet was one who was inspired by God. And these pseudo-propheton were saying that they were inspired by God, but falsely so. 
It's similar to another word that you find in the New Testament, pseudo-apostoloi, pseudo-apostles, false apostles. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, we find that title. Those who weren't just claiming inspiration, but they were claiming apostolic authority, that God had put his hand upon them to decide things within the church of Jesus Christ and to teach the word of God and lay down doctrine. A similar term in the Greek is pseudo-didaskaloi, pseudo-teachers. You've got pseudo-prophets, those saying they're inspired, pseudo-apostles, those saying that they're, 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 they're institutionalized of God to direct the church and to lay down doctrine, and pseudo-didaskaloi are pseudo-teachers, those who are coming in and saying, I have a message from God that God wants you to know. It's the word we find in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, where Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers, pseudo-didaskaloi, among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We don't have time to look at all of these titles, but you have false brothers spoken of, false speakers, false witnesses. And even in Matthew 24, we have pseudo-Christoi, false Christs. Those who the Lord said would pretend to be Messiah. Those who John said in 1 John 2 Verses 18 and 22 would deny that Christ had come in the flesh and they would try to dupe and pervert even the Christians among them. Now you will notice that all these Greek words have the word pseudo or pseuda at the front of them. And we have that word in our English language, pseudo. It, it literally means in the Greek, a lie. Something that is false. Something that is sham. And that is exactly what the word means in, in our language today. Now let me give you another insight into these false prophets. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Now we're going to take some time to go over this because I think it's so relevant and so contemporary to the age in which we are living. So bear with me as we go through the word of God this morning. Paul charges to the elders of the church of Ephesus a great warning again against false prophets. And in verse 26 of chapter 20 he says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, beware therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not spurring the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul is warning day and night the Christians with his own tears that false prophets would come into the church, would arise from within the church, and his clarion cry, like our saviors, is, Beware! The Didache, or the Didache, if you know anything about the history of the Christian church, was really the first order book that Christianity developed in A.D. 100. It lays down, really, what Christians did at the very early church. And it tells us, that Christians are to beware if any prophet or any preacher remains in their town or in their home over three days. And it says that if he remains there over three days, he is a false prophet. 
It goes on to say, if any of them ask anything more than bread, he is a false prophet. If anybody asks for more, uh, asks for money or, or orders a table before him, a meal to be set forth and begins to demand things other than necessary bread and water, he is a false prophet. If he stays in your home and he has no trade, refuses to work, but sits there all day, you get him some work. And if you can't get him any work, in other words, he won't work, he is, and I quote the Dadaki says, a trafficker in Christ. Beware of such. A trafficker in Christ. In other words, using Christ for his own ends. Motivation is popularity. Motivation is selfish ambition. He's detached from reality. He's self-centered. Self-interest is his driving force and a desire for his own popularity to tell people what they want to hear. It was like that in the Old Testament. And we find that Paul says near the end of the New Testament in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, that it will be the same in the early church and indeed in the last days. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Like an itchy ear. They want it scratched by the prophet who will tell them what they want to hear. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will be turned to fable. Now, why in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount does the Lord now address this very strange and odd subject, you might think? The reason why is simply in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, as he's been going through particularly chapter 7, talking about holy living, and the fine line that there is between hypocrisy and a real holy life, he's been talking about fasting, praying, giving, and all sorts of things. He, he stuck a dagger into those who were motivated to be seen of men. Do you see the relevance now? And after talking in the verses that we looked at last week in verse 13 and 14 about two ways, he is saying there will be false prophets who will come to you and say, no, 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 there's not just two ways. There's not a narrow way and there's not a broad way, but there are many ways or there's, there's only one way and you, you'll be saved in the end. It's a wide gate, it's a, a broad way, and it doesn't lead to destruction, but it leads to true satisfaction. You can see why he's introducing the subject of false prophets here in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems in the context that the Lord considered the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were listening to his sermon and who he indirectly pointed this sermon to and was warning his own disciples against their type of righteousness. It seems that they are the blind leaders of the blind who are the false prophets even here in this passage. So you see the context. I hope you can a false prophet will be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They will portray a hypocritical, ostentatious self-righteousness, but they will have no inward life, no vital relationship with God, and no true righteous fruit emanating from their life. His external profession will not be supported by an internal production. His verbal and ritualistic projection of righteousness will not bring forth a vital and a real production of holy fruit in his life. Essentially, the kind of godly characteristics that we've seen in chapter 5 to 7 of the Sermon on the Mount will be absent from the false prophet. So he's given us a warning not to be deceived 
that there will be false prophets. In fact, there are false prophets out there. And the second thing the Lord does in this statement is that he tells us how we can recognize them. Their existence, and secondly, their identification. They are recognizable. This is what I want to leave with you. The first point is this. You will be deceived by false prophets if you judge them by their projection. You will be deceived by false prophets if you judge them by their projection. And secondly, you will recognize false prophets if you judge them by their production. Let's look at the first point. Whenever the stern demands of verses 13 and 14 were given, the the demands of true discipleship, to take up your cross and follow Christ, the false prophets were inevitably going to arise and, and promote the wide gate. Preach the wide gate. Preach the wide way. And that's the connection between verses 13 and 14 and the rest of this passage. They will preach to go on the wide way, to go through the narrow gate. And if you're going to avoid the wide gate and the wide way, you're going to have to be deaf to the false prophets. And so the Lord says, beware of the false prophets. Literally in the Greek language, hold your mind away from these false prophets. Take your mind, and if they're near your mind or they're starting to get into your mind, hold your mind away from them. They're there to put us on the broad road and to keep us from the narrow way. They are there to water down truth until, as C.H. Spurgeon said, there is not enough truth left to make soup for a sick grasshopper. And you will be deceived, my friend, by false prophets if you judge them by their projection, what they project to be before you. Simply because, the Lord says, their appearance, verse 15, is deceptive. You'll be deceived by what they project to you because their appearance is deceptive. The first reason he gives is, the first part of verse 15, they come in sheep's clothing. The first way they deceive you is externally there were sheep's clothes. Now these aren't the pigs and the dogs that we found in chapter 7 and verse 6 because they're easily recognizable as pigs and dogs by their habits. These are people, the Lord is saying, that creep in unawares. Christians make the mistake of thinking that because they look like sheep, that they are sheep, and then eventually, after a period of time, their true character is declared, but it's too late, and the damage has been done to the other sheep. Jude talked about these people. He said, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying our only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are three possible meanings of the sheep's clothing that you can know these false prophets by. The first is the obvious one. They're portraying to be believers. They're portraying to be the sheep of God. They present themselves as insiders. They're disguised as sheep. But a deeper and a second meaning is that they, they're impersonating not specifically sheep, but impersonating shepherds. You might say, well, that's not what the text says. Well, if you look a little deeper, the word for sheep's clothing may refer to a woolen garment that was worn by the shepherd in Palestine. In fact, when the shepherd watched his flocks upon the hillside, his garment was one of sheepskin, and he used to wear it, wear it inside out so that the, the, the fur and the wool was inside and the leather was outside. 
The prophets too, when we go into the Old Testament, we find they wore a similar garment. In fact, Elijah wore what was called a mantle, which we find was a hairy cloak, 1 Kings 19. And Zechariah, referring to false prophets, says a very interesting thing about them. They wear a rough garment to deceive. In other words, the, the false prophet wears a garment that ordinary prophets would wear to show that they are a prophet. And they deceive by wearing sheep's clothing, or literally shepherd's clothing. It's interesting that in Luke chapter 20, verse 46, the Lord says of the scribes and the Pharisees that they desire to walk around in long robes. And there were those who were appearing not just as sheep, but as shepherds, prophets, as apostles, wanting to deceive the people of God. But underneath the cloak, they were anything but sheep or shepherds. The third definition of what this sheep's clothing and what it really means could be the, the simple way they come to the people, their gentle, plausible exterior. How persuading they are. They come after verses 13 and 14 and they say to the people, look, this gate, it's not narrow, it's wide. This way is not broad, it's wide. And they're so kind, they're so polite, they appear such righteous men, they don't seem as violent as the disciples in their pursuit of the kingdom of God, and they teach this easy message to people, and people say, oh, it must be true. It must be true. In Ezekiel chapter 13, we have an incident of just that. We're not going to go into much detail, but if you remember our studies in Ezekiel, you found that some of the false prophets, God condemned them because they were prophesying out of their own hearts, from their own spirit. God said they speak lying divination. And in verse 22 of chapter 13 of Ezekiel, God says, With lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked ways by promising life. You've commanded those who are doing wickedness for, your, for their wickedness, told them they'll have life. And you've condemned the righteous who are doing what I want them to do and who will have life. And you're telling them that they'll have death. What is that other than the, the narrow way and the broad way? The point that the Lord is making, talking about sheep's clothing, is that the false prophet does not advertise his falsehood. He comes as a preacher of truth, often with the language of the orthodox faith. And he's saying we as disciples must be discerning and never judge people by their projection. Never judge them by their qualifications or their degrees or their positions or their titles. We should never believe what the preacher or the pastor or the minister says because of who they are. For the Lord says that if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But rather, the Lord says, we are to look underneath the fleece to see who these people really are. That is why John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You will be deceived if you judge them by their projection because externally they wear sheep's clothing. But secondly, the second half of verse 15, also internally they are ravenous wolves. Inwardly, they're, they're wolves that want to tear the church to part. And in first century Palestine, the wolf was the natural enemy of the sheep. The sheep were naturally entirely defenseless, and the wolf, if he got among the sheep, would absolutely ravage them. 
Therefore, Jesus taught elsewhere that the good shepherd always is on the lookout for the sheep and always looks out for wolves. But a hireling, in other words, a man who's hired to do the job of a shepherd, but isn't really a shepherd and doesn't really love or own the sheep, he would run away and abandon the sheep if a wolf came along. Like the false shepherd, the hireling has self-interest. His self-interest causes him to love his life more than he loves the flock. Whereas the good shepherd, Jesus said, gives his life for the sheep. The false prophet teaches in order not to give but to get, not to impart spiritual wisdom but to display his wisdom. One scholar said, no man can at one and the same time prove that he is a clever and prove that he is clever and Christ is wonderful. You can't display your own wisdom and then try to glorify Christ. His motivation is not to feed, but it is greed. His God is his belly. He wants to satisfy his own fleshly lusts and desires. And these are men, the Lord is saying, who are ravenous wolves, bent on devouring the flock of God to their own ends. We don't have time to read it, but that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 noted down said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you one husband, that I may present you chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest that Eve, as she was deceived, you should be beguiled from the simplicity which is in Christ. And if anybody preaches another Jesus to you, it is not the Jesus that you have received. He goes on through the epistle and through this chapter. There are many false prophets, workers of iniquity, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And you shouldn't marvel at it because Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light to beguile Eve. Now, don't you be beguiled by a false prophet who looks like a sheep, but underneath is a ravenous wood. These are vicious unbelievers who prey on the immature, the unstable, stable, and the gullible in Christ. And as Guy King said, well, if you leave these wolves alone, they will soon show their greed. And if you don't leave them alone, they will soon show their teeth. Now the Lord tells us how to test for these false prophets. And he changes the metaphor from sheep and wolves to trees and their fruit, from sheep's clothing which a wolf might wear to fruit which a tree must bear. But the difference in the two illustrations is this. A wolf can disguise himself, but a tree cannot disguise its fruit. Its fruit declares what it really is, what kind of tree it is. And so it brings us to our second point. First of all, I told you, you will be deceived by false prophets if you judge them by their projection. But secondly, the Lord says, you will recognize these false prophets if you judge them by their production. What they do, simply because, as verse 16 to 19 tells us, their fruit is defining. Their fruit is revealing. Verse 16 and verse 20, repeat this statement. By their fruits ye shall know them. Now, this is an encouragement to take up the sport of heretic hunting that many in Ulster do. And we have to remember the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount about judgment. But what the Lord is telling us to do is not to be censorious, but to be on your guard. 
There's false prophets out there. There's false doctrine out there. And the false prophet and the false doctrine can only bring forth bad fruit. It cannot restrain the flesh. It cannot bring forth holiness. All it manifests is wickedness. Second Peter 2. You can read down of all the filthy works of the false prophets in their flesh. Now we know from studying the word of God that there are many parallels between the natural world and the spiritual world. As newborn babes that desire the sincere milk of the word, so new Christians are, are, are to desire the word of God as a baby desires milk when it's born. And we see this going through the, the law of the harvest and many other illustrations. And here we have another illustration from the natural world that corresponds to something in the spiritual. And the Lord tells us, first of all, the species of the tree can be known by its fruit. That's the first thing. Verse 16. Ye shall know them by their fruits, do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? And that, if you like, is the natural produce of this tree. The natural produce, the species of the tree. In other words, from the law of Genesis, everything in this world brings forth after its own kind. It's a positive statement. It's telling us the only thing that this tree can bring forth is what it's naturally designed to bring forth. Like produces like. Thorn bushes don't produce grapes. Thistles don't produce figs. And what the Lord is saying is with regards to the prophet, as Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony, if the prophets speak not according to this word of God, it is because there is no light in them. Their natural produce their fruit declares what they naturally are, the species of the tree. Now, you know what we have here? It is the gospel ABC. And I think over the years we've lost it somewhere that man is naturally depraved. He is utterly ruined before God. And what the false prophet does is he takes that up and he denies it and he makes man his own saviour and he makes Christ's blood redundant. Yet the fact is unchanged that that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he's saying this, if the fruit's bad, it is telling and declaring and revealing that the, the species is depraved. Incidentally, can we pause a moment? And can I remind you that true faith in Christ imparts a new spiritual nature to the child of God? The Bible calls it the new birth. And I'm not asking you, have you made a profession? I'm not asking you, were you born into Sunday school or into the Iron Hall or your parents Christians and have they brought you up in a Christian way? I'm asking, what is your nature? But secondly, verse 18 tells us, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now he's moved from natural produce to moral produce. He stopped talking about the language of fruit and different type of fruit, and now he's talking about good and bad, moral definitions. So he's now talking about the grade of the fruit, the caliber and the character of the fruit. And he's telling us, if the fruit in this prophet is not the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians tells us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it will be the opposite. Bad fruit works of the flesh. Immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Morally, their fruit will be bad if their nature is bad. I think perhaps also the Lord is speaking of their teaching. And as he said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The teaching of these apostles and false prophets will bring forth only immorality. Wherefore, we are to test the spirits to see whether they be of God. Like the great reformers throughout the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, who were accused by the Church of Rome of being false prophets and false teachers and false evangelists, they went to the word of God. The good fruit, the true teaching of God's word, and they clung to it. And indeed, the current cry of Luther's Reformation was, cling to the word of God, and then you will be able to recognize the judge who is right. Cling to the word of God. J.C. Ryle said well, and summed this whole matter up well, sound doctrine and holy living are the marks of true prophets. Sound doctrine and holy living. So in examining the teacher, we ought to look at both the character and the message of this man. And as you know, fruit takes time to grow. And it may not be immediately obvious the type of fruit that this man is bringing forth until his teaching eventually settles and, and, and grabs hold in people's lives. But eventually down the road, some of these new successful systems and movements that rise up, after a while they're exposed by the moral fruit that they bring forth. The species of the tree, its natural produce. The grade of the tree, its moral produce. And verse 18, what the nature cannot produce. So verse 16 was the positive of what it does produce. Verse 18 is the negative, what it is impossible to produce. A tree can't bring forth anything other than its kind. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or, or figs or thistles? Verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. But it brings forth wild grapes. As John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.10. That it brings forth bad fruit. And it's not good for anything. But to be hewn down and cast into the furnace of the fire. In other words, this fruit is useless to God. It cannot produce forth. It's impossible. And God says it's cast into hell. Peter says it goes to swift destruction. Paul says in Romans 9, it's fitted for destruction. And I want to pause again before we finish this message and say to you poignantly and with a heart full of love for Christ and for you, I can't say whether you'll be in hell or whether you'll be in heaven. But upon the authority of the word of God, I'm asking you this question. What fruit are you producing? Old Spurgeon used to say, never give a man the assurance of his salvation if he is living in habitual sin. 
The proof of your salvation is not a profession 20 years ago. The proof of your salvation is the heart life that you have at this moment. It doesn't say whether you're saved or lost, but it shows your condition at this present moment before God. Does your life testify and yield the fruit of God or yield the spawn of the devil that one day will fuel hell? So as we close in the last two or three minutes, we ask the question, who are these false prophets in our modern age and how do you know? Well, I hope that you can detect them from what we have learned this morning from our Lord Jesus' teaching and from the character that they're meant to produce. It's not hard to locate them in our world today, is it? Is it hard to see that they're found in the ecumenical movement that dilutes the gospel and makes it a gospel of works? says there's no difference between Rome and Protestantism and even between Buddhism and Muslim, the Muslim religion, Islam and everything under the sun, that it's all together and there's no narrow gate and wide gate, but there's just one particular way and it fuses all the religions of gods together. The health and wealth gospel that says you should be rich, you should be prosperous, you should be successful in your business. A broad gate, a broad way where you can bring all the baggage that you like with you. Profiteering evangelists and prophets, those on the television, some charismatic healers, modern-day Jeffrey Chaucers, like the pardoner, who do their work for money, who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, the cults who add to the word of God, the truth of God, their perverted prophets and satanic salvations. These false prophets can be found in the liberal theologians, in the pulpits of the churches of our lands, in the university halls who say that heaven and hell are a myth and the God of love could never punish anyone forever. Satan is a lie and a fairy tale. All religions lead to God. They can be found in the higher critics who take the original scriptures, Greek and Hebrew, and pull them apart. They demote the word of God to a mere historical novel full of holes and fantastical contradictions. The ungenerate churchmen who are preaching in our land today, they are false prophets, ministers who populate hell with their salvation of good works and the sacraments and the church. It can be found in the philosophies of the age, relativism, that there's no more absolutes, that everything's just as you like it and just as society dictates it, a modern psychology that makes sin a sickness rather than an immoral responsibility of every child under heaven. Blame it on your parents, blame it on the establishment, blame it on society, and if it doesn't wash, blame it on your genes. And brethren, we must take our stand with historical, biblical Christianity. We must take our stand with the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists, with the reformers and with the great cloud of witnesses, and most of all with our Lord Jesus Christ, and cry like Luther, Cling to the word of God. Cling to a holy life. And then you will be able to recognize the judge, the prophet, and the preacher who is right. Our Father, in an age in which we live, where many are blown about with every wind of doctrine, double-minded and confused, we pray as the hymn writer has inspired us to look only unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who was the only shepherd of the sheep 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for us. Lord, may we say at the end of the road and at the, the ribbon at the end of the race that we have finished the race, finished the course, fought a good fight, but most of all that we have kept the faith and that we will go to our reward having stood firmly upon the apostles' doctrine and the teaching of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.